0: Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Content Confessions. As always, it is Hershey Things 815, aka Stone <laughs> Samurai, joined by my brother Stu, aka Steve. Steve, how you doing? Sorry for that, man. Stupid pay okay. hard. It's all good. It happens to the best of us, man. I mean shit. People are used to my stream where I'm ripping bongs and coughing my ass off because I don't have a mute button. So oh, that was just dry throw. I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Um so today we're going to be talking about something uh, a little bit more specific. Um, we're going to be talking about the Banana Wars that were taking place in uh, Hispaniola, in Haiti, um, Dominican Republic, and it is an era Although, that is. that well, it's even Mexico it, involved technically. Well, yes, them too, and it's an important era because it's for one reason, one one main reason. It's you know, US uh, another sign of US intervention. Um, pretty much being uh, anti-democratic rule with the installation of puppet politicians, etc. But it's also a very important template for the United States in terms of um, using their military and economic power um, to to help guide the the idea of. Uh, we are trying to modernize, or we are trying to rebuild a nation while simultaneously occupying it and bombing it. Um, And that was, I I feel like this era, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like this era in particular was a great template for the United States and its future endeavors. And um, obviously my brother would be able to correct me on that when I turn it over to him, but I just wanted to to start it off with that kind of mindset, just so you can have an idea of of exactly what we're going to be talking about today um we are going to specifically focus on places like um like haiti and the dominican republic because as we had mentioned in previous episode we're going to be having a a whole episode on cuba just because cuba is just so um diverse and interesting and so important on a multitude of levels so we figured it'd only be fair to to kind of give it its own episode deep dive um but with that all being said um before we go into it, I'm going to turn it over to Steve because I know he said he wanted to talk about something briefly uh, before we jumped into it today.
1: Yeah, one of the first things I wanted to say is I wanted to repeat um, a mistake I had made a couple episodes ago, just as a clarification, because I did make a clarification in the last one, but it wasn't technically one of these episodes. But I had fucked up when talking about Mormonism, and I said the founder was named Joseph Campbell. He's the guy who wrote like a hero of a thousand faces, like he does mythology and stuff like that. That is not the guy who founded it. That was Joseph Smith. That was a really dumb mistake on my part, so I want to clear that up again. Um, But yeah, we're going to be focusing today on the Banana Wars, Hirsch, uh, a little bit on Honduras, a little bit on places like Guatemala, some of these countries that maybe we haven't touched on quite yet, maybe except maybe in passing, that kind of thing. But I know first, Hirsch, you wanted to mention a little bit about maybe what we had talked about in the last episode, where we have a couple ideas, a couple topics about future episodes that we were kind of knocking around, and if we had gotten any feedback on that.
0: Um, yeah, so in a Discord call, I, I brought up that, uh, that question and um, I had gotten a few comments. One person had said that they really enjoyed the, uh, the format we did for the last episode where we just kind of uh, did more freelance and didn't necessarily completely focus on history, but jumped around um, things like pop culture and sports, which is something I'm definitely open to. Um, but uh, the, the one thing that stuck out to me that, uh, that I gotten feedback on was somebody had mentioned the uh, the civil rights movement, um, particularly oh. uh, through the '50s and '60s era, mm-hmm. um, and I think that would be a really great episode because a lot of that's uh, a lot of the things that were going on in that era are definitely being reflected right now, um, and almost I don't want to say more intensified because things were a lot uglier then, but it just seems like on the surface there's a lot more tension underneath.
1: No, absolutely. And I, I think that's a great topic too, because people are going to maybe roll their eyes when I bring this up, but there's a lot of backstory that happens even before what we think of as the proper civil rights movement. I read a really great couple of novels when I was back in school. It They were about history, but they weren't history books per se. One of them was by Alice Walker. It was called Meridian. Another was by Zora Neale Hurston, but I can't remember. the. I think it was something Jonah's Gord or Jonah's grapevine. It was I can't remember the title right now, but that's besides the point. But it was basically talking about um, especially in Alice Walker's Meridian, like the idea of the civil rights movement in the way that we think about it, where it's these couple of leaders who are leading these huge marches, you know, there it's Martin Luther King Jr., it's Malcolm X, it's 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 uh, Megar Evers. Like, yes, they played important roles, but it's the people on the ground, it's the people who are doing everyday activity, these organizings, uh People who are getting on the buses going
0: down to register people to vote. People are putting their life on the line. Uh, on the well, then database. you even have people like Huey Newton that were beforehand that they that they took mm-hmm. on as an idolization and was a exactly. lot big part of what they uh, eventually started becoming as a full and civil it goes, rights
1: movement. Goes back to slavery and then Reconstruction and then the Jim Crow era. So, like, we have a lot of stuff we could do if we wanted to to focus on the civil rights movement. We would. We could definitely blow out the 50s and 60s proper, but I think to have a to have a good understanding of it, it's to see it as the culmination of a lot of events before it. Just like the stuff we're talking about in the series right now in Latin America, it's a culmination. It's a it's a rhyming. We're going to see patterns that happen over and over again because that's how that's how things are. Uh, we don't just we are as humans. We do look for patterns and try to make sense of things. So that is part of it, but there are patterns in our history, there are things we can pick up. And I think the civil rights movement is a fantastic example of that. So that's a, that's a good suggestion.
0: Without a doubt. Um, and and so
1: yeah. I'll, but yeah, I was going to say the other person's going to be happy because we do have an announcement where we're going to be changing up the format slightly where instead of every week being, a history episode where as you could tell sometimes it was two weeks or three weeks because it takes a lot of research a lot of time to try to do this when we have like full-time lives and full-time jobs and stuff you know and so I think one of the things we're looking to do is every other week
0: maybe have an episode like last
1: week I think that'd be kind of a fun thing Hirsch
0: yeah without a doubt and I think you know I think even too with it being um more loose base it doesn't even necessarily have to stray away from anything political or anything like that but you can still stay on that topic but it can just be more modernized and, whatever. yeah and just kind of delve in and, and not worry necessarily about all the um um articulates of it and just kind of have a more free flow session without a doubt i
1: have to spend like the first 20
0: minutes of this episode talking about like other stuff you know <laughs> yeah exactly you know, that's um, fun. tip Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of the process, I guess. Right. Um, And and just to quickly say, too, and I think I think it's great, as as Steve had mentioned, there's these patterns that we're constantly looking at when it comes to history. And often when it comes to history, the common response is, you know, we're supposed to learn history so we don't repeat its mistakes. And Steve, you had said something that. not, not only have I heard you say, but I've heard it, you know, repeated in books and movies, but it's, you know, it's not necessary. It's like we make mistakes, you know, we've, yeah, we've, we've known about history for hundreds and and, and thousands of years. And we're still doing the same shit that they were doing while we're saying that they were cavemen or prehistoric, or they were stupid. People Uh, are, people are just as smart.
1: People are just as emotional. People are just as intuitive. People are just as petty as they as they are now as they always have been you know people are, are people for the most part yeah culture informs that time informs that obviously but generally speaking like people thousands of years ago were just as intelligent if not more intelligent than we might have been because we live in a modern society that take care that takes care of a lot of shit for us right but uh the point of it is we don't we don't study history because we want to prevent you know mistakes from happening like oh we learned from the past we we slavery was bad, so we aren't going to do that again. Like, we don't fucking act like that. You're 100% correct, Hirsch. I remember one of my professors back when uh, Dr. Schmidt, NIU, Northern Illinois University, fantastic fucking professor, I want to give a shout out. He uh, he informed a lot of the way, I think, a lot of the way I'm able to look at history and kind of take out the things that we find interesting and, and done in this podcast. But I was taking a, a one, of, I took a bunch of his classes. I can't remember which specific one. It might've been my legal history class, but he wrote on the board, like, why do we study history? And he had it blank, you know, fill in the blank kind of thing. He went around the room talking about it and people were like, oh yeah, we, we do it not to repeat mistakes. And I knew that that was false, but I didn't quite have, you know, the answer exactly what he was looking for. But what, what it ended up being is because the past informs the present and what i what i thought of at the time was it reminded me of william faulkner who i used to be an english major before i was a history major so faulkner is one of my favorite writers he talked about the american south especially dealing with issues of race class and gender that's pretty much what he wrote about before i realized that that's what i was interested in and he talked about the past is always pre- or you know the past is always present in one of his novels he talked about the past is always with us because the way our minds work, the way we are structured mentally, the way we are structured in society, the past is present with us because it informs the present. And I thought it sounded a lot like Faulkner and and he pretty much agreed with me. He was like, you know, there's this book, Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner, which is all about the interpretation of history and how stories change from different perspectives and that kind of thing. But I think it really, it opened up a, a window for me that, you know, we look at history We find it interesting because, yeah, there's sometimes there's cool stories, you know, we like to get into that kind of stuff, whether it was Gladio or, or, you know, things like that. Like, man, that's some interesting shit right there, you know. Um, But also because it can explain what's going on in our present day. And I think that's what we wanted to get at with going back the way we did with Latin America is as we get closer and closer to the present day, you're going to see that these things in the past shaped and created what we experience. Sorry if that was rambling.
0: No, no, not at all. And I just want to add on to that. I think it's I think it's important to to look at history from that lens because ultimately I think when we're able to start looking at everything, right, when we're able to step back and and finally start absorbing history in its entirety as opposed to, you know, whitewash versions or whatever, I think That'll be a monumental step into a healing process. Of course, there's never going to be a utopia. There's never going to be people who, you know, everybody loves everybody. But I think that one of the biggest problems uh, today and in, in, in throughout history is that whenever you don't understand someone, that's when you start getting hatred. That's when you start getting paranoia. That's when you start getting violence. And I think that be, with a thing like history, we can start understanding people that are complete strangers and be able to toss aside um, perhaps just a bad day and understand the contextual pain that that person has gone through, whether it be through their own lives or through um, through their ancestors. And if we can possibly get to a point where we can at least have that understanding and, and the, uh, the context of, of everybody's situation, I think that would be, uh, the closest thing that we ever could uh, uh, get towards a utopia, but that's all I wanted to add.
1: No, I think that's well put.
0: All right, but, uh, so into uh, the banana wars, to, if you we, want to start off.
1: Yeah. yeah, the banana wars. I've been I've been talking this up for a couple episodes, right? I've mentioned it a couple times. We kind of did a rough overview a couple episodes ago when we were talking about <clears throat> the expansion of American Empire, things like the Monroe Doctrine, um, Theodore Roosevelt's policy when it came to the Monroe Doctrine, the the big stick Doctrine, essentially, and then you have um, McKinley, I believe it's McKinley, who had like the dollar diplomacy. Uh, maybe it was Cleveland. I'm sorry, I'm mixing that up. And so we kind of have a couple of different phases early on. The Banana Wars is kind of the backdrop for all of this. And I keep on going back to the, you know, Banana Wars, it sounds silly. It sounds like something from like Arrested Development, Right. There's always money in the bananas, Michael. Uh, <laughs> so you kind of chuckle when you hear something like the banana wars. But what we're talking about is essentially what was going on between 1898 and roughly 1934. But as we're going to talk about today, you will see that there was a little bit more activity later, depending on how you define it. But that period that I'm talking about is the strict era that the U.S. government was involved directly in these things. We had the American Navy, the U.S. Navy, excuse me and protecting basically either shipping lines and or multinational American corporate uh, employees and or property. So the U.S. Navy was involved, the U.S. military was involved in all these different countries um, during this era, usually in the interest of what you can say are corporate structures and corporate connections but also based on the Monroe doctrine, you know, we had talked a couple episodes ago where Roosevelt's like, hey, if any of these countries are in debt or we don't want Europe having to come over here and try to get their money back, so we'll take care of it instead. And so that becomes the backdrop, whether it's guarding these corporations and or guarding their financial interests that we're going to be getting. in. we, I'm sorry, I keep on saying that the United States government, the United States military is going to be getting involved, usually to the benefit of corporate interest of one form or the
0: other. Without a doubt. I mean, in in, in this moment, with with the particular uh, banana wars being referenced, is when you start seeing the United States openly um, involve its top um, businessmen um, alongside with government ambassadors to these areas that are either basically what you can refer to as satellite um, countries, or uh, just colonize countries, if we if we want to be a little bit more honest.
1: Well, more it's absurd. a different form of colonialism, right? We talked about in the episode wrapping up on American involvement, especially in the border wars. Like, United States basically decided we are going to stop calling certain people Americans, and we're going to stop calling new people Americans. Like, we may take over areas, especially economically, but they aren't going to be Americans. When we took over the Philippines, we did not make them Americans like we did other places, like in the in the mainland United States and or Alaska, Hawaii, that kind of thing. Like, there was a decision that was made to basically close off the American definition. We wouldn't close off the empire, we just changed it. And so that's what you're going to see as the backdrop to what we call the Banana Wars as well. A big part of understanding the Banana Wars as they were termed is the definition of what's called a banana republic and we i did cover this a couple episodes ago the basic definition that kind of thing but just to review in case you missed it or in case you don't remember we know the name banana republic right hirsch like there's a clothing line i don't know if that's still around anymore but there was when i was younger yeah i remember that's what i remember is the clothing line the clothing line right banana republic yeah. but it, it comes it from this guy's book uh he had a pen name of o, Hen- o. henry o henry and his real name was William Sidney Porter. He was alive basically for, you know, the last half of the 19th century into the early 20th. He coined the current, he, excuse me, <laughs> <coined> <laughs> a term Banana Republic in his book that was called Cabbages and Kings that came out in 1904. He made up a fictional country called Anchuria, but it was basically describing what he experienced in Honduras. He had been living there for a couple months At one point, because he was hiding from a charge of embezzlement um, from a U.S. bank. So he was up to some shit as well. But what it basically describes is a politically unstable country that has their economy dependent on the export of a single resource or like a limited resource, like whether it's a banana or other minerals. And we talked about in previous episodes, like a lot of these countries were already focused on exports, right? That was what it was all about. Uh, Whether it was Diaz and in Mexico or other places, it was about getting as many export out out as you could. And if that meant letting American and other companies in, yeah, you'd do that, but you'd make sure your palm got greased at the same time, right? And so what you have here are countries that are exploited not only by U.S. corporations, but by their own government at the same time. You have extremely stratified social class. So you have extreme gaps between rich and poor. You have a large impoverished working class and a ruling class plutocracy. And just a little bit of a definition of plutocracy is a society that is ruled or controlled by people of great wealth or income. So you have the richest people making up the elite. Not necessarily the people who are best at governing, not necessarily the people who have the people's best interest at heart, but the people who control the money and the power. Oh, kind of like America. Well, that's what I was kind of, you know... More and more, it sounds like it, and there are people who have made the argument that 21st century United States has essentially become a banana republic, in in all but like original form. So it, it's actually pretty apt that you bring that up because you're not the first person who's
0: made that argument. Yeah, well, and so as Pluto said, no original thought has been thought. Pretty much, right? It's all out there.
1: What you end up having. Is a ruling class that controls the primary sector of the economy, uh, extraction of extraction and production of raw materials, whether it's bananas or, or whatever it might be. You exploit labor in the working class. What you have basically is, is state capitalism, where the country is operated as a private commercial enterprise for the exclusive profit of the ruling class and, and corporations. But they also favor monopolies. So you're looking to, to benefit. One or two corporations, hopefully a small group of people, because you can all split the, split the money together. Fewer people, fewer people feed, right? You have a really imbalanced economy where you have a lot of economic development in certain areas where, people, where things are getting made, infrastructure in those areas. But then you let the rest of the country go to shit. The countries are usually having to devalue their currency, which makes them ineligible for international development credits which would be the only thing that can get them out of the debts that they're in. And so it's just a cycle that repeats over and over again. And in today's episode, Hirsch, we're going to be talking about some key individuals in the banana wars. But we're also just going to be talking about these events that are going on in numerous countries in this era. And be- before I, I move into the just a quick timeline, a kind of a quick rundown of different countries, Hirsch, was there anything you wanted to add, just about either the idea of Banana Republics or or a little bit about what got us here in
0: the first place? Um, I just wanted to quickly add. So basically, during this time frame, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, there's a basic concept that's been handed out through through military history. Right? Um, vehicles and technology will drive your effort. People are the ones that drive those vehicles, and food is what drives those people. So. The important thing is, is especially when you're growing empires, to make sure that you have a food supply. Um, We had brought it up before, places like France, places like Spain, um, even the the Spanish Moors. um, These were all growing empires that eventually ran into the problem of not securing, um, whether it be satellite countries or colonized uh, states that would be able to supply them with food. So it was very imperative to the United States that they ensure that they have a food supply that is not only um, reliable, but is within, within arm's reach and can be uh, controlled, whether through military or economic power, because that's what, that's what the main principle was. And I just wanted to add, that's why um, this area in particular was so important, because you had Um, things like pineapples we had things like bananas and and most importantly one of the main ingredients that they were after the most which we will bring up quite a bit is sugar a lot of these sugar plantations were um, some of the most important because obviously um, one of the most popular things in the United States Army especially when it comes to soldiers that are deployed is coffee Coffee. what yeah what do what do soldiers need with their coffee sugar sugar so um, sugar 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 so these plantations were of the utmost importance because you need to be able to maintain uh, troop morale because in a lot of these instances, and as we'll find out with uh, the banana wars is that, you know, going into it, I had an idea of, you know, a lot of these um, military units that were being deployed. A lot of them either went in knowingly what they were doing or they enjoyed it. But um, as we will find out, there wasn't a whole lot of agreement or agreement, rather, um, between soldiers and those in command, as well as those in command in the United States government. So I just wanted to add that quickly into context before we get into it.
1: No, absolutely. And speaking of bananas, okay. So banana gets introduced to the United States in 1870 by this guy, Lorenzo Dow Baker. He bought bananas in Jamaica and then sold them in Boston at a 1,000% profit. Like it was hugely popular because not only was it you know awesome tasting different but it was cheaper than like uh, locally grown fruit like if you can believe it like it was cheaper to buy bananas down in fucking Jamaica than it was apples grown locally as an example here in in 1930 I'm just getting this off of, uh, of a Wikipedia just as a quick you know upfront in 1913 25 cents, which is the equivalent in 2020 of six dollars and fifty-five cents, but a dozen bananas with only two apples. So you could either get twelve or two. What are you gonna do? You're gonna buy twelve, right? Exactly. Like, think about it though. Like, people always say, Oh man, you could get that for twenty-five cents back then. But if you look at inflation, it's six fifty-five. I would never pay six fifty for a fucking dozen bananas.
0: Hell no. Or, like, two apples, you know what I mean? Like, unless they were, like, really <laughs> fucking good, like... Yeah, like, really good fucking apples, like some serious gourmet shit, as Samuel L. Jackson would say. Like, it just shows how, like, you know, the idea of, oh, man, it was only a quarter is, is deceptive.
1: But that's besides the point, sorry. Uh, but eventually, you have, a couple years later, in order to produce food for the railroad workers, there's a couple of guys who own a bunch of railroads in the uh, United States and other countries. Henry Miggs and his nephew, Minor C. Keith. They end up establishing banana plantations along the railroads that they had built in Costa Rica. They recognize, you know, hey, man, this dude made a whole bunch of money. We can make money too. And they start exporting it to the southeastern United States, which are the closest ports to to South America and Central America and the Caribbean. In order to, like, manage all this, Keith and others end up making specific industry and businesses just for fruit export and and management. He founds what's called the Tropical Trading and Transport Company. One half of that would eventually become what's called the United Fruit Company. We're going to be talking a lot about the United Fruit Company. We're going to be talking a lot about a couple other fruit companies. But United Fruit Company later becomes Chiquita, the name that we all know with the lady on the fucking bananas at the store. It was created in 18... Yeah, Chiquita Bananas. So it was created in 1899 by a merger with what's called the Boston Fruit Company, which was owned by a guy named Andrew Preston. Eventually, by the 1930s, that United Fruit Company controls 80 to 90% of the banana business in the United States at one point. So you want to talk about... Yeah, you want to talk about a fucking monopoly. Yeah. And so basically, by this point, you have three... U.S. companies who are in control of the cultivation, the harvesting, the export of bananas. They control the road. They control the rails and port infrastructure of Honduras, other countries like it. That's where this banana republic term comes from. You have the United Fruit Company that I mentioned, the Standard Fruit Company, and Cuyamel Fruit Company. Um, Standard and Kuyamel eventually, I believe, combine or are bought out by one or the other, and they are eventually Dole, Dole Banana Company. So the, these companies are still around to this day. It's not like, you know, this is just far in the past. Like Chiquita and Dole are still fucking around. Yep, still prominent. Yeah, still prominent, still fucking with workers, all that kind of shit. We'll get to that towards the end here. But uh really quick Hirsch, I don't know how much of a chance you had to look at a couple of those individuals that I'd mentioned. I didn't really do a whole lot of research on minor C Keith or any of those, or any of the guys I've mentioned so far, but uh what stood out to you about that that
0: early part like why the fucking banana you know um <laughs> i I thought it was um I thought it was very telling because it it was kind of like the first instance where you start seeing uh, again like I had brought up before just the uh, the openness of us backed um interest when it comes to Moving different businesses into an area and setting up, as you had mentioned, eighty percent control of um, the entire market. Which again, that's um, that number is just kind of blowing my mind. Still, sorry. it's um, no, no, fine.
1: That's why I wanted to bring it up. I was just leaving it off for Wiki, but like, I just thought that was amazing.
0: No, um, but when it comes to uh, those in particular, um, the one thing, the, the only thing that I can say is that I think that. Uh, they are perfect representations of the american ideology when it comes to um instead of western expansion as we often talk about when it comes to southern expansion um and just overall the uh mentality that uh most modern americans have towards anybody that is uh basically a laborer because that's that's kind of the mentality that a lot of uh these quote businessmen had coming into the area was you know well hey We're not brutish or savages um, because we're coming in here and giving these people employment and uh, purpose. And, you know, we're bringing in roads and we're bringing in infrastructure and we're modernizing them and aren't, look at all the good we're doing, you know, just as, again, as I had mentioned earlier, the template for uh, justification for military occupation. Um, So, yeah, that's just what I'd have to add in about those two.
1: No, absolutely. I appreciate the, the addition there. And, uh, I think one of the reasons I did want to bring up really quickly is the guy who termed the phrase banana wars was a writer, Lester Langley. He wrote several books on Latin American history. Um, he popularized the term in 1983. Hey, uh, (laughs) but yeah, he wrote a book. He kind of put the, the dates on here. I don't necessarily agree with his dates, but he said, 1900 to 1834 is basically the era that he was talking about. Um, Where, you know, it became a United States tropical empire that overtook the Western hemisphere, um, starting with Roosevelt, ending with Roosevelt, a different Roosevelt, you know, starting with Teddy, ending with FDR. This, his writing, though, took a much different perspective than the writing that we're, than the stuff we're going to be talking about today. He basically was saying, like, the United States was a good police force that had to go there because, you know, there was these warring tropical countries. They were, they were lawless. They had corrupt politicians. Um, we had to like, we had to put, we had to reign over, over this area. We had to, we had to control trade. We had to do these different things because they couldn't control themselves because they were monsters, you know, because they were idiots.
0: Well, and, and in a lot of cases, just like with Mexico, you would see a lot of times where people would get elected and they'd only last a month or two because they'd be assassinated, overthrown, et cetera. So that was part of the justification as well. Well, especially if you're doing the coup yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, like, hey, let's install, like, some rebel forces and arm them with, like, machine guns while the other people only have, like, rifles from the 1800s and stones and sticks.
1: Oh, my God, you're so unstable because we put you in debt and and sent weapons to revolutionaries.
0: Yeah. go Surprise, surprise. surprise. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, I mean, you know, you had people, you know, without getting too far ahead, but just to name drop one name in particular to give you an idea, um, you had people like J.P. Morgan Jr., that were literally getting involved with the United States government, as well as governments from uh, the Caribbean islands and South America and Central America, um, just purposely for the, uh, for for the end game of milking them dry and fucking them on loans. Like that was the whole sentiment for it. Absolutely.
1: No. And like it really, if we talk about the motivation really quick, just to kind of give you an idea, it was about the United States and U S corporate interests keeping control of the economies of these countries, keeping control of the political and military apparatus, apparatuses of these countries because you didn't, want, you didn't want anything interfering with the money. You wanted to make sure that you had complete control over the money because if you had revolutions, if you had governments changing over, you might get somebody in who goes against your business all of a sudden and that's going to piss you off. And we're going to see that coming up, especially in, in Honduras and a couple other places um, specifically.
0: Well, not only do you have to worry about the revolutions that are taking place in that area, oh. but in this in the specific time that we're looking at, the United States is worried about um, European European interests and in interference in that area.
1: Oh, that's yeah. what
0: that's what their main that's what their main thing is. And we can argue whether or not um, everything that was done in the Caribbean or South America or Central America is out of just like pure evilness. <laughs> like that's all semantics, and that can be argued up and down. But I think it is one of the variables um, as to why the United States did what they did, especially in terms of the banana wars, um, is, is to evade European control of any region that was that close to the United States.
1: Oh, yeah, it was about, you know, protecting that sphere of influence. We had talked about that episodes ago, you know, that was the whole point of the Monroe Doctrine is making sure that Europe can't interfere that corporations from your foreign companies can't interfere because we want to have this as our, this is our territory. That's how the United States is thinking at that time. And so, you know, whether it's bananas, tobacco, sugarcane, like Hirsch had mentioned, especially um, any, any commodity in the Caribbean, Central and South America was seen as fair game. And it was about protecting those interests at all, at all costs. And it did end up costing a lot. And that's why you see at the end, we had mentioned last time where the great depression and then roosevelt pulls a lot of this back not necessarily out of good intentions but because you couldn't fucking afford to do it that way anymore you you couldn't send the navy um on these long occupation missions you couldn't send the marines on the on these uh invasions and occupation missions over and over again without costing a lot of money Uh, not only because were you were you having to pay for you know these soldiers and all this equipment all these military vehicles that kind of thing but you're also disrupting trade while you're doing that. The United States needs to find a way that's much easier to control these things, to make sure that you keep these things under control without expending as much effort, without expending as much force. And that's what we're gonna be talking about in the future. And that's why I think this episode and the next episode that we do on Cuba are great bridge episodes between what we had been talking about all the way to this time, building the path that we're on, building the ideas that we're on, and what we're gonna see especially come the cold war leading more to the present day with the United States and other treatment of Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, It's going to be very, it's going to be different, but for the same goals.
0: And exactly. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. I I didn't know if you were finished, but I I mean, that's exactly what we had brought up before, you know, and it's, it's a cycle of, um, Repeating, and it's obviously something that's just kind of being mimicked today, whether it be from the United States or um, a different, uh, a different military power that is uh, in in the modern world.
1: Absolutely, and <laughs> Israel. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, hundred percent. Um, that's a cluster fuck right there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. I was just reading an interesting article about archaeology in Israel and stuff like that and about, you know, doubts on the Temple Mount and the Wailing Wall and that kind of thing. It's it's really interesting but really hard to get into unless you know a lot of specific things. But it was – I just want to bring that up really
0: quick. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always really hesitant on how much I call out, like, Israel because last time I, like, did that politically, I got, like, fucking shut the fuck down and I started getting really crazy phone calls. So, yeah. Yep. You got to be
1: careful what you say. I don't want to practice any self-censorship, but I also don't want to speak out of turn. Yep. Um, But yeah, getting back to to the banana wars here, um, free Palestine. Um, You have multiple U.S. interventions. It goes back to really 1846, but the proper period that we're, we're focusing on is really this Monroe Doctrine, Teddy Roosevelt period, where you have interventions in places like Panama, because really, what this is about is about trade, right? And a big part of this is the Panama Canal. And we'll see later when we talk about Nicaragua, is that was the original location for a canal, but that ends up falling through. So Panama becomes a huge focus, right? And as I'm talking about these different things, Hirsch, whenever you want to jump in, feel free. I don't want to go. Jump, I don't want to go too fast through these things, but I, I do want to maybe just touch on a few of them and then get to our main part. No, you're fine. But uh, yeah. So you have Panama. You have you know, we want to make sure that Panama, we have access to, to create the, this land for, for a canal so that we can make trade you know, X times better. We talked, I think, in the last couple episodes ago about how fast it may travel compared to what it would be going all the way around South America, that kind of stuff. Um, so Panama is able to succeed from the Republic of Colombia with backing by the U.S. government during the Thousand Day War. We had talked about that previously. The U.S. is able to construct and control the Panama Canal. And in 1903, the United States established sovereignty over what's called the Panama Canal Zone. Um, It's not built until 1914, but they had a or not opened, excuse me, until 1914 because they had a bunch of like malaria and crazy shit like that. But essentially, that's what Panama was about. That's what a lot of this stuff was about: was trade, securing the canal zone, that kind of stuff, making sure that U.S. shipping, U.S. interests could operate without having to get fired upon by rebels and that kind of shit. You had the Spanish-American War that we've mentioned several times where U.S. is able to seize Cuba and Puerto Rico from Spain in 1898. This leads to the proper start of the Banana Wars. You have Cuba that we're going to talk about much more in general, Hirsch, but you had wanted to mention really quickly, I believe, one of the quick uprisings if if you wanted to take a
0: moment. Um, No, no, no. It's okay. We don't... I can save that for the full Cuba episode. Are you sure? Okay. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Okay. I just didn't want to cut you off from that. No, no, no.
1: You're good. Okay. Yeah, the U.S. is able to take Cuba from the Spanish Empire and occupies Cuba from 1898 to 1902, and again in 1906 to 1909, 1912, 1917 to 1922, and then really until 1934. Uh, so we were wild, let's say. And in 1900, we took a permanent base that you know it's this little thing called
0: Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, we we, we we'll, we'll just move on from that, right? And. Uh, <laughs> Well, just to quickly add, funny, I don't enough, know. funny enough, though, I had just watched uh, the movie The Report with, uh, what's his name, that played Kylo Ren? Um, Adam Driver? Adam Driver, yeah, where he played uh, the guy that was from CIA that started leaking out all the documents about the, quote, enhanced interrogation uh, oh, yeah. process. Yeah, it was a good movie. Highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, so we, we still have Guantanamo Bay till the, till now. Something that we got in the Spanish American War, awesome, right? Yay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's a it's a site too, just because of where it's strategically located. It's mm-hmm. it's a place where they don't necessarily have to adhere to a lot of uh, U.S. Um, sanctioned or uh, NATO sanctioned um, rules, or at least that's the guys that they use. You want me on that the wall. wall? You need me on <laughs> that wall? <laughs> that's what, you know, what it's just... about,
1: right? Like, yeah, know, well, I've seen that recently.
0: No, I've um, I've seen I've seen snippets of it, but you know, speaking of walls, I just want to also point out, you know, this whole series we've been talking about, um, you know, left and right movements. I just, uh, I just find it funny that you know, even after something like, uh, y- y- even though it's a different wall, something like the Berlin Wall comes down, and you know, we're still worried about communism. But uh, I just wanted well, to add to that.
1: They're they're back, you know.
0: Yeah, everybody far. likes everybody likes socialism, so we gotta be careful of the Russians. Well, I mean it's it's all ramped up. It's, it's all part of, you know, an end game. Republicans aren't stupid like a lot of uh, these neoliberals like to put out because it's all part of a plan. Uh um, staying it, on it's... Go ahead. Well well, I was just going to say, staying on communism. Whenever you, whenever you say the word communist, you immediately think of two different countries. You think of China. You think of Russia. And so, depending on what the Republican sentiment has, is at the time, or just central centralists in general, um, that's where it's directed towards. And obviously, right now, um, most American sentiment is anti-China. Um, I, I think it's fair to say because most people kind of are indifferent about Russia, which is weird. But yeah, you know. and
1: in some ways, it's. People, especially the rules hate Putin right now. But like not too long ago, they didn't really mind him too much. So yeah. take that as what you will. But it's a it's a post information age, right? It's what was that? Uh, what was that dude? Was it Medvedev Medvedev in Russia who
0: like was Putin's like uh, propaganda guy? Yeah, because he had came out and basically showed the model that basically the U.S. has kind of adopted, where he would. Uh, Putin would fund groups from both sides, even sides that hated him, just so then that way anybody trying to uh, do any sort of investigation, investigative journalism of anti-corruption or anything like that, wouldn't. They be able didn't know to where to find anything.
1: anything. yeah, because yeah, it was all connected. Yeah, um, and uh, they talk about that in the the Q and podcast I've been listening to, funnily enough, because it's the same kind of stuff like. I don't want to spoil anything, but check out the QAnon documentary on HBO if you have a chance, uh, Q Into the Storm, and also the QAnon Anonymous podcast, which looks at QAnon from a very critical leftist perspective, um, but they talk about a lot of this post-information like society, uh, this uh, PSYOP warfare kind of stuff, you know, and, and the way that Q kind of gets wrapped up in that is uh,
0: a very interesting narrative. But we sidetrack, I apologize. Yeah, no, that's my fault, because I, I had started it. That's my fault, but... No, know. no,
1: you're okay. Um, but we have, again, uh, etching in places like like Mexico, where, you know, the United States is involved in the border war. They have, you know, stuff where you're giving uh, certain munitions to different parts of the rebellion. You have the fucking coup. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you have the 1940-14 occupation of our crews that we had mentioned before. You have places like Haiti, Hirsch, which I think we're going to mention in a in, a po- in another episode. Um, that's where you have that cacao wars that you you had brought up as well, correct? Yeah.
0: I, we, we were talking a little bit about it before, but yeah, the the caucas the or the cacaos, they um, were a I guess you could say ragtag group of freedom fighters that hated, <laughs> absolutely hated both um, French imperialists as well as Americans. Yeah, and so we, the,
1: the United States, excuse me, occupies Haiti from 1915 until 1934. The only reason they pull out is again, Roosevelt with that good neighbor policy. Really it's the depression. It's too much money. People had turned against it for far too long. It was taking way too much money, way too much energy to take care of. Um, you have uh, Nicaragua, which like I had mentioned before uh, was the original idea for, for a, a, can, a canal zone. And that ended up falling through. But basically, it's occupied by the U.S. almost continuously from 1912 until 1913, or 1933, excuse me. Um, They wanted to make sure that, you know, their interests were protected. You have Marines there, you have Navy personnel there for for about 15 years in total. And it's all about making sure that you don't have governments that you care about. Because what Nicaragua was doing every now and then is they were trying to fight These other governments who were taking over by corporate interests because they were invading territories and that kind of shit. We'll see a little bit in Honduras and Guatemala that we're going to be talking about where this is going to come up specifically. You also have uh, the Dominican Republic where you have what's called the Santo Domingo Affair in like 1903, 1904. And then in 1914, uh, there's naval forces that are battling people in the city of Santo Domingo again. And then the U.S. is occupying that territory uh, in, in the Dominican Republic from 1916 into 1924. So all in all, not only are we intervening with our Navy, with our, with our corporations, but we're literally con- taking control of these different governments, putting in people that either are going to agree with what we want or running them ourselves to the, to the benefit of U.S. corporations, of U.S. banks, of, of U.S. interest in
0: general. Well, and I just want to add, it, it was also a really fucked up process the way that they went through with it, because it was basically anybody who said, yeah, we're, we're, we love US, USA number one, anybody who said that they would just be like, okay, here you go. Here's like 1500 fucking Marines at your disposal and like thousands of machine guns. All you got to do is just do what we tell you to do. And that's it. Um, and, and a lot of times it never ended up working out because again, I said, um, the vetting process that a lot of that the military took place in a lot of times it'd be with guys that were obviously, um, anti-imperialist, but they were, they, they just didn't care because they only had one end game, which was control. So their, their power and their money kind of blinded them from that. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think we're going to take a little bit of a slight differentiation with the rest of the episode now where I'm going to try to talk about a couple key individuals, A little bit of what we did in the Mexico Revolution episode where we talked about uh, Zapata, Pancho Villa, uh, Huerta, that kind of thing, where these gentlemen are going to be key figures in all of this. It's going to kind of help explain the period that we're talking about, but maybe not focus on on one period or one country specifically. But I had mentioned people like Minor Cooper Keith, who had interest in those Central American companies that had started um, exporting bananas and that kind of thing. His country – or excuse me, his company – was absorbed in the United Fruit Company, where he became vice president. There was other country and people like Andrew Preston, who had formed the Boston Fruit Company, where it was located in, guess where, Boston. But uh, they were shipping, you know, bananas and other fruit from the West Indies to the Northeast. But Lorenzo Dow Baker, others like that, they end up getting... Their companies either absorbed or taken into other stuff, but they also are involved in places like Jamaica, that kind of stuff too. So the United Fruit Company is going to be a big player once it absorbs Boston Fruit Company, a couple of others. That's the one where I'd mentioned before that United Brands ends up becoming Chiquita. Guys like Andrew Preston, this uh, that Keith that I mentioned, are are very similar. You know, these are these American businessmen who are taking advantage of a market that they can really make a lot of profit on with very little initial investment, but they end up turning that initial investment into really big corporate structures where they're owning multiple companies under different names, but they're really under this corporate umbrella. They're under this conglomerate structure where you have railroads, you have other infrastructure, you have shipping, you have uh, ice trucks, you have ice storage that are bought up by all these different people and, and operated and One of the people that ends up doing that, or not one of the people, but a couple of different people, I think it was the Ficaro brothers were their names. Um, Yeah, they started Standard Fruit Company, which is now Dole Food Company in 1924. The Vaccaro brothers were uh, Sicilian, I believe, and they were exporting and importing bananas to New Orleans from uh, Honduras. They were, by 1915, they had grown so large with what they were doing that most of the ice factories in New Orleans were for the banana ships. Like the, the Joseph acaro the one of the brothers was known as the ice king. So like they end up owning steamship companies, all this kind of thing. Standard Fruit actually ends up changing its name eventually in the, to Standard Fruit and Steamship Company. It's then acquired by Dole and that's where it becomes part of Dole food to this day. I also wanted to mention one of the people that's involved in this stuff, uh, besides the couple guys that I had mentioned before, is a guy named Sam Zamuri. He, uh, he kind of stuck out to me because he's a fucking hypocrite. And if there's anything that pisses me off more or you know, anything more than a hypocrite, I'd be very surprised. But he made his fortune in the banana trade. He founded the Kuyamel Fruit Company. He later does a buyout of United Fruit Company and merges them but they're having these really controversial roles in places like Honduras, Guatemala, that kind of thing. And his connections are going to bring in a couple other people I wanted to mention too. But really quickly, Hirsch, I didn't know if you had a chance to, to look into any of the, the fruit companies that were, you know, Chiquita, Dole, you have these big names now, but I didn't know if you had done any research on on the older companies.
0: So the the thing that stuck out with me, and and I think you're going to get into this a little bit was exactly with Zamuri in, in the sense of, um, You had somebody who basically uh, had come from Russia, right? If I remember correctly, I don't, I don't have my yeah, phone no, you, at you the would, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish family who escaped Russia. Who's yeah, he had, he had fled Russia um, because there was a certain point in time that probably will end up doing an episode of uh, where, where Jews were being persecuted throughout land, specifically if, Russia. The if anybody the-
1: saw American tale, the cartoon from way back in the day, this That's is about it. That's basically what's going on—the
0: pogroms in Russia. Yeah, um, but I just wanted to add that um, I think I think it has a lot to do with the fact, and maybe I'm wrong, but I I think his prominence and his success, even though. We end up seeing from his perspective. He tries to, you know, have the old American adage built up by my bootstraps. If I remember correctly, and I might be wrong, I might begin to mix up with somebody else. He was one of the guys that was in the original companies that was backed by J.P. Morgan, correct?
1: Um, he might have been, but he he got started kind of weird. Um, he worked for his uncle who owned a general store, and so that's kind of how he got involved in like uh, like being a merchant and that kind of shit. Okay. He was able to eventually bring over his siblings from Europe and that kind of stuff. So he started off relatively poor. He might have had – I didn't see – oh, yes. No, no, no. He would. Um. He was involved with JT, J.P. Morgan and company. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. You are correct. Um, he, the, in Honduras, bankers of J.P. Morgan would eventually become involved. And he was involved in those deals. I just
0: don't know how early he was involved with J.P. Morgan. Well, it was more or less the line that he um, – he had like a relationship with somebody that was uh, like one of the chief financiers for mm-hmm. for JP Morgan. And that's how it originally got got introduced because it wasn't even necessarily um out of uh, out of his own doing that he was trying to trying to eventually get like this this big buyout. It was basically just the mutual benefit uh, that both JP. Morgan as well as uh, Zamuri had because JP. Morgan was wanting to. Um, expand its business and not just have operations within the United States. Because, yes, you can make monies off of Americans, but you can make a lot more monies off of foreigners. So that was kind of the sentiment that they had. And at that point in time, the uh, the bank, specifically J.P. Morgan Bank, was basically um, elbow to elbow with the Honduras government, correct? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. it was... It, like I said, it was a mutual benefit that, uh, that both of these people ended up having with this relationship. It was just kind of a mere, I, I don't like to say this, but it was just kind of a mere coincidence that, that they were able to, to get it to happen the way that it did.
1: Yeah, and Zamuri has a, has a weird origin, right? Where like, when he's really young, he ends up going to Mobile, Alabama he wants to to get involved in the banana trade because it's this new delicacy I just mentioned. You, know, It's only been around for 20 years, but he encounters them for the first time in 1893. A couple years later, he's like, hey, I'm going to get involved in this shit. But bananas ripen really quickly, right? Like when you get bananas, you try to get the greenish ones because you know in a couple days they're going to be ripe and then they're going to go bad pretty quickly. Imagine trying to ship that back in 1900, right? Or 1800 in 90, where you don't have the Panama Canal yet. You that you can get countries that are on this side of the Americas so that you can get shipping really easily to the southeast. He would buy the bananas that were kind of close to overripe and he had found ways to get them quickly transported because he had like connections in railways. And so companies that were bigger would want to get rid of their bananas that were kind of going to be right really soon quicker so he would buy the surplus essentially and then make a whole bunch of money selling them locally and and semi-locally through these rail networks he started off with 150 bucks by the time he was 21 he had um saved up over 100 grand like he made his money in a, a really like disruptive like i'm gonna buy the cheapest shit and make the most i can off of it
0: yeah he was just undercutting everybody
1: at that point Mm -hmm. like he's really he's not only fucking consumers over he's probably fucking workers over like he's finding ways to cut everything and making as much money as he can off the cheapest shit that he can buy he eventually uh hooks up with united fruit around 1903 they uh he forms the Hubbard and murray company with another guy where they would buy united fruits ripest shit and then sell it United Fruit then buys like a portion of his company. It's kinda of confusing here, sorry. Um Zamuria moves to New Orleans, like his adoptive hometown eventually. And he buys a steamship company with that company. And then they also buy what's called the Cuyamel Fruit Company. And then they make that the fruit company's name. So even though he didn't start Cuyamel, he eventually the company that he make becomes Cuyamel, even though he buys it. It's kind of weird. Sorry. Um They didn't really grow bananas of their own at this time. They're still just importing at this point. But what they do is they make an investment. In 1910, he buys 5,000 acres along the Cuyamel River in Honduras. And he ends up borrowing money. He buys more land. All this is really well suited for growing bananas. So he starts building plantations. He starts building bridges. He starts building roads and railroads. He brings in Jamaican workers who were cheap labor at that time. I'm pretty sure they were treated fantastically. Oh, without a um, doubt. Yeah. But Hubbard, his partner at that point, is like, hey, man, we're getting too deep. I'm out. So Zamuri buys his shares. He, he has it all. This is where especially you're going to start to see J.P. Morgan start to get involved. Um, he ends up making a lot of deals with people involved in the Honduran government. Uh, He makes deals, he makes bribes. But the Honduran government is in a lot of debt. They owe the UK a lot of money. And remember, at this time, you have a policy in the United States of if a country has a large debt that they can't pay back to a European interest or a European nation, we need to get involved so that shit doesn't involve that European country first. So United States Secretary of State, this guy named Knox, he has negotiations where they would place these agents of bankers, uh, J.P. Morgan and company, like Hersh had mentioned, in the customs office so that they would collect the taxes that would help repay
0: that debt. I'm pretty sure everything was above board, right? Yeah, without a doubt. And that was where they eventually ended up coming up with what's coined as the uh, penny-a-pound tax, correct? hmm Yeah, and so Zamuri is worried. He thinks that these taxes are going to ruin
1: his business, but he makes a deal. He has connections with JP Morgan. He's able to make it favorable, but he still wants to make sure that he's able to control this company, this country um, through his company, through his political connections, through things like that. But Knox at first doesn't want to play ball. He tells him not to fuck with Honduras. But Zamuri decides, no, I want to fuck with Honduras. He devises a plan to help th- overthrow the current Honduran president, Miguel Davila. He wants to prevent the deal that Davila is making with these other companies because Knox isn't just working for United States interest. There's actually these other fruit companies have their interest at in mine too, where at the time United Fruit Company was kind of a rival, you know, um, even though he was working with them, they became a rival. And so they're, supporting different aspects of this deal. It's not just one American interest. You have different American interests who are competing with one another.
0: Oh, the wolves fighting for who gets the meal.
1: Yeah. Like they're they're fighting over not even scraps. They're fighting over the whole body, you know? Yeah. And so he wants to make sure that that, you know, Knox didn't want to play ball. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of fuck this shit up. He recruits a guy named Lee Christmas. I want to just talk about Lee Christmas really quickly here. He was uh, born in 1863. He ends up passing away in 1924. He was an American mercenary who took part in a lot of this different stuff going on in Central America. He was born in what was considered the Confederacy at that time. So I'm pretty sure he had great racial views. (laughs) Sorry to be such a cynic tonight. Uh, no, I love it, <laughs> but yeah, he was he was born on a plantation. Like, I'm pretty sure this guy was like, like old school, like man of the South type shit. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, fucking uh, what, what's a uh, Davy Crockett skin hat and
1: yeah, like I, I think even more fancy. Like if you think about like Bacon's Rebellion, like those planter class motherfuckers,
0: you know? Oh yeah, okay, so I'm a little bit of a Yankee Doodle type, but Southern Bell.
1: Yeah, Southern, like you know, like not not the Rhett Butler necessarily but like, uh, like even more like kind of badass, like wannabe. Um, yeah. But he ends up becoming involved in railroad work and stuff like that. So he he's running locomotives. That's what he's doing for a long time. But he ends up getting, you know, he ends up moving to Honduras because all these railroads are, are going there. One of the trains that he's on is captured by rebels. He ends up joining their cause. He's like, hey, fuck it. I'm not going to be if they're going to be running around having fun with guns, I wouldn't do that too. Uh, The rebels are kind of impressed. Like Bonilla is the guy at the time leading this revolution in Honduras at the moment in 1897. But he's known as the incredible Yankee and Bonilla makes him an officer. But he ends up defecting to the government forces in 1899 under a guy named Sierra where he gets appointed to be a colonel and chief of police of a city. But then, that's in 1902 that he gets made the president and stuff, uh, you know, gets appointed and everything like that. But then he defects again in 1903 to Bonilla again. <laughs> then Bania becomes president. He appoints Christmas as a general. So you have this, this Confederate-born Honduran general, like only an America, man.
0: That's so fucking bizarre, dude.
1: Yeah, but like one of the things he's known to do at that time was he was known to like try to intimidate the the indigenous people by like chewing on glass. The fuck? Yeah. Like you talk about a weird motherfucker, all right? But like uh he tries to he tries to help Pania invade Nicaragua in 1907, but that doesn't go so well. Christmas gets wounded. He gets exiled to Guatemala. Kind of chills there for a while. That's where Zamuri steps back in. He wants to change up regimes in Honduras because he's not happy in 1910 about what's going on between Knox and the Honduran government. You know, Davila, who is the general who had overthrown Bonilla, is making this deal with the government. He's playing nice to a point with the U.S. government and the U.S. interest. 'Cause he just really wants his he doesn't want his country fucked with too much. But he's making deals, you know, financial deals. He's one of those liberals who's like, Yeah, I'll make a deal if I have to. But this is coming at the expense of Zamuri. So Zamuri hires Christmas. He wants him to organize a coup that will bring Benia back and, you know, fuck over not only the uh, Davila government,
0: but the United States government and these other fruit interests. And, and so, the thing about Benia really quickly too, is mm-hmm. that um, when he had when he had lost presidency, he had basically been exiled, and he was in the United States um, living at this time while all of this is going on. I just wanted to add that quickly. In.
1: Okay. No, no, I, I appreciate that because I wasn't too aware of that part.
0: Yeah. No. So he, he had basically been exiled, and he was living. Um, he, he was he was fucking down on his log, man like basically he was dragged down bad he had no money and he was living um somewhere in new orleans from uh from what i gathered
1: okay yeah new orleans is like a, a major point for all this activity right like it's a big big hub you have a lot of activity with corporate interests with government interests and that makes me think of uh a gentleman that we brought up early in this podcast uh connected with new orleans and another way later on in the 60s
0: oh Saw. So. exactly. Not I'm glad that I, I'm glad I got that right, dude. That just made me feel so good about myself. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I think of. You know what I mean? Yeah, without a doubt. I always think of fucking um, Tommy Lee Jones as Clayton Shaw. So oh, dude, lie. he
1: did such a good job.
0: Yeah, he did. He slayed that role. Like,
1: like in retrospect, it's uh, it's a very homophobic movie, and I kind of resent it for that, um, with the portrayal of not only his character but Joe Pesci's character too it's it's mm-hmm. it's, really, it's like oliver stone's very homophobic in his portrayal in that movie um that is definitely a criticism i have now watching it but i, I didn't necessarily see back then but Tommy Lee jones still does a fantastic job kevin
0: bacon too mm-hmm.
1: good movie uh, a lot of it turned out to be bullshit because it turned out that the guy kevin costner played was really just a homophobe um That's the unfortunate part when you turn when it turns out like the some of the people you're like oh man that interesting guy eh, he he turns out to be a piece of shit. Um, He might have had some right ideas, but it turned out he's a piece of shit. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Okay. It's an iconic scene. Oh, dude, it's it's a it's a scene for sure. Yeah, back to um, Lee Christmas. What a fucking name, right? So he gets like a hundred dudes in New Orleans. So Marie supplies the weapons and the transportation. But they the first revolution does not go well. It, it, uh, it was a failure. It's a lot like some Bay of Pigs type shit, you know, like, oh no, we fucked up. We fucked up again. Um but they're like, hey, we're gonna do this again in a year. And so the next year they they try to re to reorganize. They are like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this shit. And they're able to get soldiers from the local population. Vanilla's rebels are able to capture a couple cities. They're able to actually win a battle in 1911. Christmas has these fucking machine guns that he's able to get a hold of. I think they were uh, Colt Model 1895 machine guns. Like uh, they basically were using like army surplus stuff, you know. But they they use these machine guns to like tactically, or they're able to just inflict a lot of casualties with you know, very little casualties on their own side. But this is one of the first time that automatic weapons are used as a, like a, an attacking and support procedure. And so it becomes like a big influence in world war one. So like what, what Christmas and these guys are pulling off ends up influencing a lot of military tactics that we're going to see for the next generation or so. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing too.
0: Well, not only was it the firepower that uh, that they were able to get their hands on that led to high recruitment, because anytime that you have um, a rebellious or a revolutionary movement, it's it's not as easy as people think to get people to actually come together and like take arms and do all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on top of having the firepower, I, one of the things I wanted to add for for context is that most of the Honduras people like mainly being the people that were working these plantations they were pissed off. And when J.P. Morgan had announced this, as we had mentioned earlier, the uh, penny-a-pound tax, as he referred to it, um, a lot of these workers in particular, business owners, yes, but I don't give a fuck about them, if I'm being quite honest. <laughs> um, but the but the workers were really like, okay, how is this going to fuck us up? Because, you know, shit rolls downhill. That's the old adage. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of anti-American, anti-J.P. Morgan sentiment. So the moment that, um, you had Zamuri, who was, who was taking up arms, going against a Honduran government that was privy with U.S. interference. It, was, it allowed him to gain a lot more traction where people might have been a little bit more hesitant before, even with the, uh, the surplus of firepower.
1: No, absolutely. It's an important aspect. And Bonilla is able to take back the presidency. He's the president of Honduras again. Uh, he appoints Christmas as his military commander. But Bonilla doesn't have too long. He ends up passing away in 1913. Christmas loses his his dude, right? Like, that's the dude who brought you back. That's the dude who let you defect a couple times, but still come back and help him. Um, he tries to volunteer in World War I, but he's old. He's over 50. They're like, dude, you need to go home. Uh, but he's kind of exemplary for this period. He he lives in New Orleans. He lives in Guatemala and Nicaragua. He's trying all this different stuff. He He's working as a mercenary. He's kind of a just an interesting character for this period. But Zamuri's not quite finished. So I'd mentioned Honduras, but it's not very long that Zamuri has his revenge against that rival United Fruit Company, where just a decade or a couple of decades later, excuse me, he's able to take over by a hostile takeover, the United Fruit Company in nineteen thirty three. So the company that basically forced him to have to do a coup d'etat,
0: he ends up taking back over. And he was able to take that over, just to quickly delve in, he was able to take that over, one, because Andrew Preston, the person who had owned the United Fruit Company, he had passed away. Yeah. And on top of that, he, his company was uh, millions of dollars in debt because the stock started declining. Obviously, you had things like the Depression, so it was just a multitude of things, like a chain reaction of what could go wrong for a company happen.
1: Yeah, so you had Keith and Preston, who had started United Fruit Company. But later on, like I said, in 1933, Zamuri takes control of it all. So you have United Fruit, like I had mentioned by that point, they controlled 80 to 90% of the market. So Zamuri was a hell of a fucking capitalist, but he was a fucking hypocrite. I'm going to get to that in a little bit here. But yeah, uh, United Fruit Company is what's known today as Chiquita. Just wanted to mention that one more time, just in case. Um, so you have what happens, though, is the great. There's a lot of instability, right? You have a coup d'état that just happened because of a fucking banana guy. Um, they have a lot of extern. They have a lot of debt. It's estimated about four billion dollars U.S. And so at that point, they don't get to have access to inter- international investment capital. They have a deficit. They're seen as unstable. People don't want to invest there. And so you have this perpetual cycle where these companies are in debt functionally to foreign companies, to foreign governments. That creates instability in the government. You end up with massive corruption. What we see now today where, where drug cartels are are in control of vast swaths of these, these countries and where you do have government control a lot of the time, they either get assassinated and or they're corrupt. And so it basically creates a situation where the, the company is able to make it so that they run the country and everyone who is a citizen is an employee in some way or the other because the whole economy is about what you do with this company. You, don't, you aren't focused on anything else. All the development is for this company. They would have railways. They would have plantations. They have at this time, though, a huge uh, like fungus that infects all the bananas, and it kills off like huge swaths of the banana, but they would just abandon the plantations and wreck the railways. So they wouldn't even let the countries keep the infrastructure. They weren't even using anymore. That's what's
0: really fucked up. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like that, that's (laughs) sorry. I just like, that's what's, that's the part that drove me crazy. The most is like, not only do you come in and just like fuck up their entire economy and ecosystem, but like afterwards you destroy the infrastructure that you used to destroy their ecosystem and their economy in the first place. mm Mm-hmm fucking nuts
1: no it, it's really crazy to think about and around 1913 though zamuri had stepped back so before 1933 where he has his final victory just to step back for a quick second um he had bought back the portion of his company that was owned by united fruit but he had used like antitrust pressure from the u.s government to kind of get control back of his company he ends up controlling other fruits like uh, coconuts, pineapples, palm oil, cattle, lumber, sugarcane, all this kind of stuff. So he's getting involved not only in bananas, but all of this kind of stuff going on. He's getting he's getting to be a huge player in the game. He's not only controlling a government, but he's controlling a lot of what's going on as far as trade goes. United Fruit was his huge enemy still. They would compete in land, uh, sabotage. You'd see legal challenges, outright violence, like in 19... Uh, 19- 28, there was a Cuyamel fruit boat that had like a huge stock of weapons. Uh, the US, United States State Department would like try to have discussions between him and United Fruit, and they would fail because they were like, hey guys, why don't you just merge your fucking company and end all this bullshit? But like they hated each other and they weren't going to do that. Zamuri so eventually sells Cuyamel to United Fruit for $31.5 million. He became one of the richest people in the United States at that time. He, he felt the pressure, though, from the U.S. State Department and then the Great Depression that had hit. He was like, you know, now is a good time to get out. He agreed to retire completely and that he would not start a new fruit company, anything like that. So he got involved in other stuff. He would, uh, would kind of get bored with that. United Fruit wasn't doing too good, like you had mentioned hers with the Great Depression. Their stock fell in value by like 90% after it got Kuyumel. So after he steps out, they United Fruit fucks it up. They can't do it. So, uh, so Zamuri comes back. That's when he's able to say, hey, I'm going to buy United Fruit and my old company back. I'm going to own all this shit. But then that Panama disease hit. So good thing that he had diversified his portfolio as Wu-Tang said in Dave Chappelle. Wu-Tang Financial, baby. Wu-Tang Financial. Diversify your portfolio. Like, so he, he... That's how he made his fucking money. Like, you can tell United Fruit either wasn't doing it the way they needed to or they just didn't have the guy behind the system because they fucked it up. He was able to win. In 1933, he takes it over. Um, we do see him later on in the 50s getting involved in some stuff that's going on in Guatemala. I want to talk about that in just a moment. But... um. To talk a little bit about why I was talking about how he was a fucking hypocrite, is that he's one of those guys, a lot like Bezos, a lot like Gates, where he thought if he was just a, in you know, if he gave money to charity, if he was in philanthropic causes, he would be a good guy, you know? He uh, he gave a lot of money to Tulane University, Radcliffe College, The Nation Magazine, which is seen as like a leftist magazine. He was also like sometimes called a, a leftist because he supported the new deal. Like that kind of shit itself was, was kind of silly
0: to me, but well, I mean, and just to add quickly without getting too off track, like everybody always fucking praises the new deal, but they don't ever want to talk about the fact that the new deal specifically left out people that were Latin or black or Asian or, mm-hmm. you know, women.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and he retires in 51 He makes all these donations. You know, I I imagine a lot of this probably is at the end of your life. Maybe you're feeling guilty for the fucking first time because you're almost dead. Mm -hmm. But he made all this, uh, you know, all these charity donations. He supported Roosevelt, but he also was a huge Zionist who supported uh, early stuff with Israel, uh, the state of Israel and that kind of thing, too. So he was spreading his money around a lot. But he was a piece of shit. I just wanted to mention that. Sorry.
0: No, worth noting.
1: And yeah, they, people say, like, there's writing I've seen where they're like, yeah, he was a supporter of left wing political movements and values. It's like, no, man, he wouldn't have been fucking a union buster and treating these fucking people like shit if he was
0: actually a leftist. You can't you, claim to, well, it's just, you know, you can't be, you can't claim to be a leftist while like simultaneously supporting like an occupation that leads to ethnic cleansing. Like, it's just not a position you can take. That's if nah. you consider liberals left wing. That's the well, problem. Yeah, that's, yeah.
1: You know, and maybe he was trying to clean up his image by donating to some leftist stuff at the end, but I, I still don't buy it. No. Oh. And, like, if you look up um, the house of the president of Tulane University in New Orleans, you can see one of his houses. And uh, it's one of those, like, holy fuck, that guy had way too much money. Somebody should have killed him.
0: <laughs> yeah. That or like, burned his house down.
1: Yeah. But yeah, Coomel Fruit Company, Zamuri eventually turns it into United Fruit Company, which the modern day firm Chiquita Brands International is what we have today. I wanted to make sure I brought them up because Sam Zamuri kind of sets the template for, for what these industrialists, what these, uh, what these corporate leaders and U.S. government interests were up to at this time. I wanted to quickly mention a gentleman who, um, I brought him up a little bit here. Hirsch. His name is Sherbert Ho- Sherburne Hopkins. I didn't know if you looked any into him at all.
0: Um, not a whole lot, but I have a uh, a general idea. If you wanted to start off,
1: yeah, he just he has an interesting connection to these kind of events. He's he's not involved directly with any of the uh, the stuff I mentioned previously, like by name that I saw, but he kind of fits a template of what. The lawyers and lobbyists were up to at this time. He was a lawyer and lobbyist in Washington DC. Um, he had started off with I believe his father's law firm. He ends up different clients whether it was people, people like uh, Henry Clay Pierce who eventually becomes uh, I believe a secretary of state if not just a tycoon. Um, this guy Charles Ranlett Flint who is known as what's called the Father of Trust. He's a really interesting dude, okay? This Charles Randall Flint. He had a bunch of rubber companies that he eventually made, United States Rubber Company, which is Uniroyal. And then he had another company that was called the American Chicle Company, where he started off like gum companies and shit. So this guy has a lot of weird stuff going on, okay? Chicle. Yeah, Chicle. Chicle, Chicle. Chicle. right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, then, is the, uh, the substance that they get from trees to produce gum.
1: Exactly. And it was a Mexican thing. It was uh, brought directly from Mexico for the most part. Um, but he ends up starting a company called the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, CTR. It was a company of uh, manufacturers who do record-keeping and measuring systems. Guess what that company eventually became? Oh, don't tell me. IBM. Oh shit. Seriously. Like That's this nuts. shit is all is all over the place, all right? So this this guy I'm talking about, Sherbert sure, Hopkins, he is not found IBM. It's this guy, Flint, who does, but he's he's a lobbyist, he's a lawyer for these guys, okay? And so this guy, this guy Flint has huge business interests in Latin America, Africa, India, basically anywhere you can think of that we need to exploit, he had business interests in. Especially southern Mexico. One of his rivals in Mexico after he bought a share of the National Railroad of Mexico was the grandfather of Aristo Madero of Francisco Madero. So the Maderos had known Flint from the very beginning in the Mexican Revolution, and he actually helped them get money for the Madero side early on. So even though they were competitive interests, they knew they had similar interests. So, so Flint was interested in helping Madero. That's so nuts, <laughs> that yeah. dude. It's so weird how everything's coming together. But yeah, continue. Yeah. Sorry. Like, no, that's why I wanted to bring this guy up, okay? Because he ties a lot of this shit together. And then, so Flint is also trying to work with uh, with that Henry Clay Pierce that I mentioned. He was the guy who had purchased a part of the National Railroad in Mexico. I had made a mistake there, but he knew Flint, who knew Madero. Pierce wants to make sure to avoid anything from, from Rockefeller, because him and Rockefeller are like enemies we know Standard Oil Company. So Hopkins ends up getting involved and he represents Pierce in negotiations with Carranza eventually. He's doing all this stuff behind the scenes, that kind of stuff. He also eventually served, he had previously served, excuse me, in the, in the Spanish-American War. So he probably was like military intelligence on top of being like a a lobbyist and, and a lawyer. He works for Flint and all these other people. But what it's really known for with his law firm is they were able to manipulate a lot of stuff in Central America at this time, too. There eventually is a conflict, like I mentioned before, between Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador that eventually ends up bringing in Nicaragua. Nicaragua invades Honduras to take care of Benilla who was really a puppet of United Fruit at that point. But the United States is also coming in to try to protect these things. Like I would mentioned before, that's why they're coming in and, and attacking Nicaragua, where they want to take out this guy, Zelaya. And so you deny financing to Zelaya, You give money and influence to Honduras, Guatemala. So you're basically playing kingmaker in this region at the same time. You're also getting loans from each of these governments that I'm pretty sure lawyers are taking commission for, bank agents are taking commission for, and the bank is making money in all the interest that you know becomes a public debt when all the profits are private. So you have these countries, these banana republics who are making all these debts. When they do make money, it's only going in the pocket of the elites and the corporations, but the debts are getting passed on to the state where nobody has any social benefits or nobody has any infrastructure that really gets to benefit them. And so all these loans are getting negotiated by these assholes, and you have his connection, like I mentioned, to the Mexican Revolution, where he's helping out Madero, all this kind of stuff. He's also just pretty much working with U.S. intelligence at this time. He was an informant for the military intelligence division, like I mentioned. So not only was he Army, but he was intelligence for sure. So he would uh, he would impart stuff to his clients more or less and in the interest of his clients but he wasn't necessarily always working for the US government he would really just work for himself and his law firm He eventually ends up hooking up with Carranza and other people in the Mexican Revolution but he has connections to like a lot of weird shit going on whether it's oil companies other stuff like that he ends up getting involved in a scandal of Carranza's, or the Carranza scandal, basically, where he gets like put out there, where it really hurts his public image. But he still stays in the interest of Pearson Flint, but he just goes in the background. He isn't quite necessarily as involved, but he's still a really important figure. And it was quoted as him, you know, he's forgotten more about Mexico than any other American will ever learn. And so his influence on Latin America and the Mexican Revolution is really kind of hidden because of what happened at the end, and because of him trying to go to the background. But he's really influential on about a lot of the period that we've talked about. So I wanted to make sure I'd mentioned him too because he's he's got some interesting connections.
0: No, it's interesting hearing all that. Just because I, you know, I had um I discussed with somebody before. I'd found out a fact, and it was. I think Emmett Till was babysat, or one of his relatives was babysat by the mother of Fred Hampton, and um, and it was it was an article I had read that it, it started off with that story and it started talking about the interconnections between a lot of major historical um, African-American figures throughout history and the close connection of them. And just hearing this moment now about the connection of, uh, let me double check on the name Shervern. Uh, I wanna make sure I got that right, Mr. Hopkins. uh, Just hearing the connection that he had with people like Madero, the the Madero family, as well as um, Carranza. It's just, It's so bizarre. And it just, I I don't know. Whenever you hear things like that, me personally, I just, it's, I don't know. It just, it strikes an eerie feeling. It just makes you wonder, um, you know, is it chaos, organized chaos? Like, what exactly is it? Well, you realize all these motherfuckers know each other and they all have the same interests. Well, I mean, wasn't there that, there was that girl, this was like when Obama was president. She did the, uh, the genealogy and she ended up discovering that over 70 to 80% of the United States presidents um, are all related or have heritage linking back to uh, the same person.
1: Well, it's that, it's that nobility idea, right? The blue bloods. That's why the Habsburgs are so inbred. That's why you had all the, the nobility of Europe that was so inbred is because they wanted to keep their bloodlines pure quote unquote, right? No. Yeah. You only marry within each other
0: keeping in, in the family
1: <laughs> and yeah so part of that instability that ends up bringing to honduras though is there's two different civil wars in honduras one in 1919 um one that goes on in 1924 i don't want to necessarily go into those too much because we're not necessarily studying just conflict there right now but know that the united states had interest there that they had people they wanted to win versus people they wanted to lose and they were going to act accordingly Later on, we're gonna come to a part of the story here in Guatemala. Guatemala is another banana republic here. You know, uneven economic development, huge gaps between rich and poor, a couple export crops, that's really about it. In the 1950s, the United Fruit Company wants to convince the United States, whether it's Truman or Eisenhower, that this guy, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, was actually a a pro-Soviet leader because he had expropriated some unused fruit company lands and given it to landless peasants. You remember how I mentioned they just gave up on some plantations or would just move on? This president decides, hey, let's give it to people who can fucking use it. They're like, no, that makes you a fucking commie, dude. And so what we're going to talk about in future episodes it's not going to make as much sense here, but Cold War policy was anti-communist 100% of the way. You had Joseph McCarthy at this time, other stuff going on where Eisenhower's
0: like, cool, dude, let's do it. And and just to add, the anti-communism uh, movement was so strong that you even had um, organized religion, um, such as the Vatican, that would start interfering with uh, foreign and governmental affairs in in this case, and in, in the sake of fighting against communism, because there's – there's often a, a link that's drawn between um, communism and atheism, which in a lot of cases may hold some some weight to it, but it's not always the truth.
1: Yeah, and and the, and the story of of Arbenz is actually ends up really sad. Besides the point that he's a democratic leader who's overthrown, um, he you know was a, he was born from a rich family, but he ends up taking a lot of agrarian reform seriously. He's one of the few elites who is like, hey, no, I need to take care of these people who have been fucked over. And it really represents the the first, the only couple of years of really truly representative democracy that you can say in Guatemalan history. That country has been fucked from the beginning and we made sure to keep it that way. He's only really president for a couple of years from 1951 to 54, but he puts in these agrarian reform programs, like I had mentioned, where he's taking this land that's not getting used, he's giving it to poor people, to peasants that they need. That does not make the United States or these fruit companies happy, especially United Fruit Company. The United States gets concerned about communists in the Guatemalan government. Arbenz is eventually ousted in the 1954 Guatemalan coup that's engineered by both the U.S. State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. You have a military leader, Colonel Castillo Armas, who replaces him, who has an awesome Hitler mustache, if you ever look at uh, photos of him. He's a great-looking gentleman. Um, no. But he's a member of what was called the right-wing National Liberation Movement, the MLN. He was authoritarian, who basically comes to power and puts in uh, was essentially in. uh a dictatorship and the cia is going to start here with taking leaders out they don't like with whatever means necessary and we're going to see a lot of that repeating as we move along into future episodes so this is going to be the first time of many that we end up bringing up the cia and their involvement in in this different stuff when they aren't happy with how either leftist a certain leader is or how even perceived being left is dangerous for them. But what was started, excuse me, I forgot to mention, they called it um, Operation Success, was what they called that 1954 Guatemalan coup. So yeah, cool name. But eventually, uh, Armas gets assassinated by a presidential guard in 57, so things don't end up too happy for him either. But really quickly, just to wrap up with um, our Benz here, it's really kind of sad because he has to go into exile into different countries. At least he himself doesn't get killed. But eventually his daughter commits suicide, and he descended into a really bad alcoholism, and he dies in Mexico in 1971, like basically a broken man. And it's a really just a sad story overall. And eventually the Guatemalan government in 2011 did issue an apology for his overthrow. What's a little bit too fucking late at that point. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And so he's another, you know, one of those leaders where it's like, hey, somebody who actually takes some leftist stuff kind of seriously, and you take him the fuck out.
0: Yeah, well, you don't want it to work, do you?
1: Yeah, because, you know, he knew a couple communists and and accepted a few ideas.
0: Well, I mean, and and the thing was, it was important, too, because a lot of people... Um, listening now, especially those that might be younger, you might go like, "Why would the government fucking purposely stop uh, something from possibly being great?" Um, as we had mentioned before, this was starting the the rise of anti-communism, the the Red Scare, as it's often referred to, the Cold War. And when it came down to it, it was basically we have to do everything first. We have to do it before they do it because if we don't, look what we look at the look at the atom bomb that we made, right? Like. Mm-hmm if we don't fucking get that kind of technology first. So it became uh, an intercompetition. That's not just between governments, but just a competition even amongst its own citizens, which was um, a very interesting time.
1: Now, and one of the things that ends up happening with all of this is you see one of the first open uses of psychological warfare, Psywar, where as part of this invasion force, the CIA in U.S. put in a radio station that would broadcast anti-government propaganda and a version of events that were very favorable to rebels in like the guise of news. And so you had this propaganda, the psychological warfare that's going on at the same time, where the Guatemalan army basically refuses to fight eventually. And it's seen as like the death plode to democracy. You eventually have a bunch of U.S.-backed authoritarian rulers in Guatemala, who ended up fighting civil wars for four decades against leftist guerrillas. And you also have eventually, and I I wanna make sure we come back to this, but it's called the Guatemalan genocide. It's also referred to as the Maya genocide or the silent Holocaust, where a bunch of Mayans and villains are are massacred by the Guatemalan military government um, as as counterinsurgency operations. And so what what we see here is our fucking around because of perceived leftist ideas or perceived communist influence, you have a lot of the Dullest brothers making a lot of influence in this shit right now to bring it back to what we had talked about before um, with Gladio, where this is where you're starting to see what we can maybe refer to as Gladio in in Central and South America, where I think it, it provides a good bridge between what we had talked about before in in a lot of different ways and what we're going to be talking about in the future. And and in order to justify the coup that they had done, the CIA CIA launched an operation called Operation PB History. That was a covert operation that they, um, they basically were trying to show that it was Soviets who were influencing Guatemala. And that's why we had to do this. But it didn't really fucking work that way. But yeah, eventually led to four decades of civil war and a lot of fucking
0: bloodshed. With some of those incidents, we will most likely be getting into um, in future episodes where we kind of speak more about uh, specific conflicts as opposed to certain people. And again... It was important to do this episode this way because there's going to be a lot of names that we refer to. There's going to be a lot of situations we refer to. And now with listening to this episode, you have a general understanding of Mm -hmm. some of the key players. Um, Just so then that way when we get into it, you can understand the conflict. Uh, Because again, um, history is a very layered and very complicated process. And um, even from somebody who is enthusiastic about it, such as myself or even from my brother, Uh, it can still be very intimidating and overwhelming. So hopefully, uh, with the way that my brother has broken it down, the way I've broken it down, um, we've at least uh, done a good job with helping you, um, those who are listening, uh, keep up and understand exactly what we're doing.
1: Yeah, and and one last person I wanted to bring up here, Um, he's involved in a lot of these different conflicts. He was a guy named Smedley Butler. His nickname was Old Gimlet Eye. Uh, but yeah, he was a, a United States Marine Corps officer. He fought in the Mexican Revolution and World War I. He spent over 30 years as a Marine. He was active in places like, uh, uh, I believe, Nicaragua, uh, places, other places in, South, in the Caribbean and Central America, in the Philippines, in China, in France. Like He was involved in the Boxer Rebellion in, in China. Like This dude like
0: got around. He was um, everywhere. Well, he was yeah. even in, involved with uh, the occupation of Veracruz. Absolutely. Um, during the rebellion. Absolutely. And he actually
1: got his first Medal of Honor in Veracruz. Um, he, at his time of death, he was the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. He received over 16 separate medals, five of them for heroism. He is one of 19 men to receive the Medal of Honor twice. And one of three men to be awarded both the Marine Corps Brevet model and the Medal of Honor. And he's the only Marine to be awarded the Brevet Model and two Medals of Honor, all for separate actions. And so this dude was not only involved in the military, he's what you can definitely call a military hero for all sense and purposes. For sure, best of the best of the best. And he's involved in the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War. The Marine Corps is sending him to China to help in the Boxer Rebellion. He's involved in Honduras. He's involved in Veracruz. he gets his second Medal of Honor in Haiti, which we're going to be talking about later. He's involved on the, um, the Western Front in World War I, but he's not quite as active in World War I. I think at that point they were like, hey, we need to protect our, our most decorated guy. You know what I mean? And so he ends up more in like a directorial kind of role. He retires from the military eventually. But he's not done with influencing his, our, our idea of what the Banana Wars are. He eventually ran for Senate in a Republican primary. He was approached at some point, he says, this is called the business plot. He says in 1934, he was approached by different groups, representing some money interests, representing some commercial interests, conservative interests, that wanted to overthrow FDR at that time. They wanted to have a coup of a democratically elected president in the United States itself. He eventually says, no, I'm not cool with that. He describes the conspiracy to what was called then the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which eventually starts to investigate communists under McCarthy and that kind of thing. But that's the only place any evidence has been presented to this point, because the committee committee had a final report, but they didn't release everything. And the committee's report pretty much supported what he said, but all the media turned on him. And they dismissed the plot as, you know, oh, this crazy hoax by this old soldier. But not only was he trying to expose fascism in the United States, because he really was an anti-fascist, at least, even though he was uh, uh, you know, a military Republican at that time. But he also becomes a pacifist. He becomes an anti-fascist and a pacifist. He writes and gives a speech called war is a racket where he's making an argument that it's business and commercial interest who are profiteering from warfare whether it's making money off the war itself or making money off of the conflict because of their interest he he's asking these questions like you know who's making the profit who's paying the bills it's, it's them making the profits it's us paying the bill paying the bills you know again it's it's privatizing profit while, pu- while making public socializing the, the the debts. And so Smedley Butler has like this huge reputation now as, as a. As an anti, anti-war, anti-imperial Marine. And it's just, it's an interesting guy to go from this huge career where he's getting sent all around the world spreading American empire. And he sees what's going on. He knows what's going on. And he eventually puts out there, hey man, this is all bullshit. Not only was he like a leader in Haiti, but he's involved in you know the Mexican Revolution like I mentioned. He's seen all this kind of stuff and and he knows it he knows it for what it is. And I think I think he's a good place to kind of wrap up as far as these characters go where you know this is setting a precedent for US involvement in regime change by whatever means is necessary, whatever argument you can make whether it's uh whether it's commercial argument or eventually becomes an anti-communist argument. Tied in with with commercialism too, like he, he's calling this shit out for what it is very early on.
0: I just made thought- ahead of his time. No, he was an interesting character, yeah. and I'm glad you brought him up because I I was actually gonna mention him briefly, but I mean you summed it up perfectly. Um, and I, I definitely thought it was. Uh, it almost felt like I was reading a a, a movie when. Just him describing uh, well, some of the speeches that he had given when they were being described. Because here you have a soldier who had killed hundreds of people, if not thousands, right? Mm-hmm. And had been all over the world. And here he is saying, like, yeah, this shit's a joke. Like, all you guys are being sold out for, like, a bunch of people that sit in a room and laugh at how stupid you all are. Um yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of bittersweet because you realize, um, especially a soldier like that, just the isolationalism that will come with that, you know, when you do call out uh, atrocities that are done or whenever you do try to stand up against the powers that be. Um, and I'm really surprised that they didn't fucking assassinate him point blank in the face when he started speaking out on that. That's what I'm really surprised about.
1: Well, and I'm surprised they approached him as, as part of that that coup you know
0: Um, yeah especially with how outspoken he was
1: yeah and but the thing was he eventually was calling out roosevelt but he was calling out roosevelt from the left he talks out against this thing called the economy act in 1933 where like they cut federal employee benefits and pay and that kind of stuff he wants veterans to realize like he's he says quote unquote i'm trying to educate the soldier soldiers out of the sucker class he wants people to be able to support themselves not through this profiteering nonsense, but through other ways. He actually condemns FDR for having too many ties to big business. He's thinking that FDR is too close to these corporate interests as opposed to, you know, a socialist. But he wants to, he essentially says, you know, I believe in taking wall street by the throat. And he has this quote I kind of wanted to wrap up with, if you don't mind as far as uh, what we were talking about tonight. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Cuba, or Haiti and Cuba, a decent place for National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of a half dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras write for American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped to see it that standard oil went about its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three, three districts. I operated on three continents. Damn.
0: That's a fucking quote right there. Yeah, dude, that hit me. He said, Al Capone had three districts. I had three fucking continents, dude. Yeah. That's some gangster shit right there. That, I love okay. it.
1: Like That's why I just wanted to make sure I brought him up as well. I thought it was a kind of interesting way to wrap up what we were talking about. Um, but currently, both Dole Food and Chiquita Banana International have tried to make a pivot to like a better corporate image. Not a lot of people really know about this shit in the first place, but what you do know about currently is they're involved with a lot of pesticides that make their workers sick and eventually cause cancer, attack the central nervous system and also infertility. So that's awesome. Um, They're also Mm -hmm. treating their laborers and farmers like shit as usual. They try to say, you know, Hey, we have, we have labor movements now, but they really intimidate and harass their labor organizers Worker, working conditions are dangerous, really low wages, so it's not much different. They're still making money off these different governments, off these different workers, and you still have, especially in Honduras and Guatemala, really disruptive governments, drug cartels that are transporting cocaine and other drugs. You have high murder rates, and then you wonder why people are fleeing these countries and trying to get somewhere that might, cause, might give them a little bit of fucking promise, you know?
0: Well, you know, even aside from a lot of the uh, like the military and like the gunfighting, one of the other things that people often forget, especially when it comes to um, exploitation farming, um, which this basically is uh, the destruction of the entire ecosystem. You know, like a lot of these farms have to get drainage ditches and they have to have, you know, all their waste drain off. And, and a lot of times because of, you know, anti-regulations, it's basically a libertarian's dream Um you know, no regulations, you can poison the entire city with no repercussions, no legal uh, sort of discourse whatsoever. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the other effect that a lot of these people um, in, in Central and South America to this day are still having to endure, not just uh, uh, basically an old French system that basically you can decide whether you pay taxes or you don't fucking get paid at all uh, for your work. And that's what they're stuck to now on top of that, you have, you know, your rivers, your lakes, your reservoirs being completely poisoned or being exported to a whole different, entire uh, region or country itself.
1: And Honduras has one of the highest homicides rates in the world—like 38 people killed per hundred thousand people. Extremely high. Um, mm-hmm. So you have all this stuff, and it. it's brought upon by the by the events that we've talked about before, and the stuff that we're bringing up now. You have. American imperialism spreading through corporate interest, through naval interest. It's also going to start spreading through intelligence, through other things within the CIA. We're going to see something called the School of the Americas, other kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about in the future here as we're getting more into the Cold War era. But like I said, the, the, the strategy is shifting. It's moving away from direct confrontation into the good neighbor policy and then finally to their cold war policy i think guatemala was a pretty good example of that where you had the cia at the end of saying fuck it we're going to take over from here and i think in the next episode we're going to see cuba as another good example from this direct confrontation where you have the united states basically occupying cuba for a couple of decades at, at one point to we're going to try to influence them much more through through uh, cia control through back channels and it doesn't quite have the same effect in Cuba as it does in other places, which I think will be fun to study in the next episode.
0: Without a doubt. And there's specific reasoning too why Cuba was a little bit more, um, I guess you could say, resilient towards United States efforts in the beginning, um, especially just because of some of the remnants from uh, Spanish rule and some of the implantations that, that were left over from that. So definitely will be a fun episode to get into.
1: And I, I do want to make sure that we talk a little bit more in the future about that stuff with uh, the Guatemalan Civil War that happens later on. We're going to mention um, a lot more specific things, do some deep dives on different conflicts, different revolutionary parties, different uh, right wing movements that are going to be involved in the drug trade, also getting support from the United States covert operations, the United States State Department,
0: that kind of thing. So uh, I think we got a lot of good stuff coming up. Yep. And most importantly, all relevant. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add real quickly for a wrap up? No, I think, uh, I think that's a
1: good, good base there for the banana wars. I appreciate everybody giving a listen. I hope, uh, hope we cover
0: some interesting stuff here tonight. Oh, I know we did. Um, I think, I think overall, especially when we got to, um, got to hear about our, our good friend, Francisco Madero and uh, Carranza, I thought that was a real nice little treat. Um, and especially uh, the, the, the Dallas brothers, um, seeing their involvement. Um all this stuff just come, connects, man. Yeah, interconnection. Um, and I mean, as my brother really,
1: we're we're doing this we have it organized this way for a reason. You know, like it's all gonna it's all gonna make sense. We're not just pulling your leg.
0: Yep. We organize. It is organized, I assure you. Um but to to echo a little bit of what my brother said, thank you to everybody who's been listening. We appreciate it. Uh, Our next episode, as we had mentioned, it's going to be a little bit more of a free flow, kind of like uh, the last episode that we had done. So if there's anything in specific that you guys want to hear, um, do not hesitate to get a hold of me. Otherwise, we're just going to kind of...
1: Yeah, send uh, us some questions,
0: shit like that. That'd be fun. For sure, would love to answer. Um, But on that note, I will say good night to everyone. Good evening, good day. If you're listening to this before you get started for work, Um, And hopefully we will see you next time Uh, on behalf of Stu and myself. Thank you and catch you later. Bye.